Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. This is a pre recorded program presented by KSL News Radio and Intermountain Healthcare. Healthy Mind Matters, brought to you by Intermountain Healthcare. We discuss the important community issues of stronger mental health, emotional wellness, and the growing problem of addiction. Here's our host, Maria Chaleos, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Thank you for joining us for Healthy Mind Matters. Today we are talking about the emotional struggles for multicultural communities here in Utah during COVID and the protests. With me, Nubia Pena, the director of the Utah Division of Multicultural Affairs, Byron Russell, who is the co-chair of the Multicultural Subcommittee of Utah's COVID-19 Task Force, and Zeman Sal, the director of Salt Lake County's Office for New Americans. She also co-chairs that task force. I have to tell all three of you that I'm a bit overwhelmed at the magnitude of the disparities and how multicultural communities are really trying to deal with these. So I've shared with you that I am Greek and I have just one little tiny comment in comparison to what you've talked about, that just the fact that I can't hug my friends and you know, extended family members for me is emotional. But to think about these other communities and how they are dealing with all of the disparities, uh, lack of technology, fear on so many different levels just seems so overwhelming. So, Nubia, I have to ask you how you're going about this, how you're reaching out, and how you're trying to make changes in a system that there are so many big, huge systemic problems or disparities. Thank you so much, Maria, for that question, because you're right, it's it's systemic, it's institutional. This is going to require multiple layers of strategies, not only doing community outreach, um, talking with our communities to know what they need, how we help, but then also talking to state leaders and directors of agencies to think through how they can create more culturally relevant programs. So as part of the subcommittee, um, the Multicultural Subcommittee for Utah's COVID-19 Task Force, that has been one of the areas of focus that we have had, is talking and partnering with state agencies that are developing outreach initiatives to consider, is it appropriate to serve our communities? Are you working in culturally relevant and inclusive ways? Is it available in multiple languages? Can people call and seek services and have someone speak to them in their native language? What are barriers that we can begin to eliminate at the onset of these programs versus in the aftermath? Another thing we're looking to is also to help fund some of the organizations through the racial equity and inclusion fund that we launched. Uh, People can 
can donate to this and to help us bolster the efforts of the nonprofits on the front lines that are helping. We have organizations like the Multicultural Counseling Center that provides uh, culturally relevant services to families in crisis. There's also Pick to Card that's working with um, Pacific Islander communities, Latino Behavioral Health. There's many organizations, Urban, um, the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake also does culturally relevant mental health services. So those programs really need our support to ensure that they are able to address the need that is happening and growing, but also making sure that our state partners and organizations um, are creating culturally relevant avenues for people to seek out services. So we're building partnerships and then we're also hoping to financially support these organizations. But through that racial equity and inclusion fund, we need people to support us as well. Um, Z and Byron, I would also invite you here to share about what we're doing. Well, I have to say that our multicultural subcommittee to which uh, Nubia has referred is just the cream of the crop. We have people who are involved with us from every cross section and represent so many communities. And you know what's amazing about them is they do this because they love their communities. They don't get paid. They meet every week. They meet sometimes three or four times a week. And you know, much is expected of them and they offer so much. And these are volunteers, but I also have to share with you that we have some incredible state leaders on our subcommittee. The head of public safety, Jess Anderson, corrections, Mike Haddon, uh, education, Tammy Piper, um, mental health, Ming Wang. We have, we have amazing people, but here's one of the problems and the challenges that we faced. You know, we, we do have incredible state leadership. We do have amazing individuals who serve on our committee. But then there's this understanding of the need to trust a source. The trusted source and the trusted information is that operative word trust. And you know the voices by which people hear about resources, about testing, about you know financial um, sort of financial access, um, digital divide access. Here's here's something that I know is a little bit of an elephant in the room, but you know today, reading about how South Dakota is is sharing information um, about citizenship with individuals um, to the federal government is just it just bleeds my heart to think that here we are we're trying to reach every single 300 some million people in our community and recognizing that how we behave together is a process of communication. And that process of communication comes with our leaders being able to make people believe that they can be trusted. The problem that we do have, however, is that most people have found distrust in those areas of government, not through the fault of the government per se, but this image that they have that perhaps if I go and get tested, and I'm undocumented or I'm unsure of my documentation, then I risk my family. I risk my job. I risk so much in my life that could actually be impacted. So I just hope that I'm safe. I hope that I'm not sick. I hope that you know I, I can go home to my family and say it's gonna be okay. And so, you know, I I really do appreciate you, you expressing as a member of the Greek community 
this need to express, you know, just to be able to hug. And, you know, our communities connect in so many different ways. You know, our black communities, a lot are faith-based, enhanced through their ability to go to church. Um, well, there's only so much that Zoom can do, you know? I mean, you can't hear those towering voices in the choir. Um, if, you're, if you're a Latino, um, you know, you, you do have other areas where you would connect. And so one of the goals that we have is to try to make sure that we are communicating with trusted voices, sometimes delivering information through libraries. Libraries have a greater um, amount or credibility in our communities than say, maybe state or city government. Um, and so we, we have to really listen to voices and we have to listen to those individuals in our community who do, who do let us know um, and we are informed of their distrust. And we have to mitigate that with some unique voices, partnerships and, and leadership. I'm just gonna um, add to that a little bit and, and switch the conversation um, um, on, on about how multicultural communities are being affected at a higher rate. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that they're affected at a higher rate, not because um, they are disadvantaged in, in, I mean, they are disadvantaged, but not because of faults of their own, but it's the system that we have in place that has really affected them. And so as we began to talk about uh, people of color being affected on this, that um, it's important to acknowledge that they 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 have so much value. They are they um, they are resilient, um, and that if we continue to put uh, uh, to continue on this conversation, that that those people, those people of color, uh, are being affected because they they are less um, resilient. I think that that is it, it really penetrates deeper into this um, this um, um, mentality that, that that they are lesser than than others. And I want to make sure that we, we bring that into the discussion too, because I want to um, I want to um, emphasize that our communities are resilient, our communities are strong, our communities are able to overcome this. Um, and in highlighting how strong they are, it's important to help them um, help, help them paint a, a, a brighter picture for for the, the, the assets that they bring um, to a community. So I, I, instead of, of painting the picture from a deficit standpoint, I think that is also important for us to really emphasize the resiliency of our communities. All right, we need to take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about, we, one thing we haven't talked about is really the biases that um, these communities are experiencing, uh, discrimination, and how people are reacting to the protests and to the pandemic and the start of the pandemic. We know that uh, people of color across the spectrum have experienced some of these things. You're listening to Healthy Mind Matters on KSL News Radio.